I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. Come along with us on a journey through the book of Judges here on the Bible Book Club. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. Well, in chapter four of Judges, the cycle of sin continued. And again, the Israelites cry out to the Lord, just like sometimes we do. (laughs) The cycle of sin and then we cry out to the Lord, God save me. And he sent them Deborah, a prophet and a judge, but not a warrior. Then Deborah sent Barak, the local military leader, to rescue the Israelites from the Canaanites. Barak was a reluctant rescuer, though, and required Deborah to go with him. Being a fearless female that she was, she agreed, but told Barak that his reluctance would cost him. Forfeiting his pride, he became the pickle in the middle of two fearless women, Deborah and Jael, who killed the opposing Canaanite military leader, Sisera, all by herself with a tent peg. (laughs) Deborah and Barak, then in chapter five, write a song all about the victory, including some random information about Sisera's mother, who was an intriguing contrast to both Deborah and Jael. Okay, so far in Judges, we have discussed the first three major judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, all of whom who had epic stories. They defeated their oppressors, delivered Israel, and restored peace to the promised land for a combined 160 years. The next three major judges have longer stories and more character flaws that get worse with each story and with each cycle of sin. This is the story of Gideon, the weak warrior. Now, Gideon, we will find waffles. His faith is dry and he lacks stickiness. He waffles with doubt. He waffles with fear. He waffles with God's word and he waffles with power and control. In this episode, his weak faith causes him to doubt and fear, and he waffles as he struggles to trust God. Starting in chapter 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock in their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. All right. So what did the Israelites do? For the fourth time, we hear that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By this point in the book, the author needs to make no other explanation They were worshiping idols. What the author does point out is that things have gotten so bad. There's so much imagery in this paragraph that the Israelites are literally living in caves, kind of very much like when they were nomads. Now, they didn't live in caves, caves, but they lived in tents. They had no land of their own. And the cycle of sin is progressing with each judge. Now, who oppressed the Israelites this time? The Midianites in particular have exploited the people and the land. This was not just political control. 
These people were taking God's gift, his promise, the fruit of the land, from the Israelites. The author likens the Midianites to swarms of locusts, which reminds us of what God brought upon Pharaoh when he delivered the Israelites from Egypt. And God is sending a message here. For he warned the Israelites that if their sin became like the sin of the Canaanites, they would suffer the same fate. They would lose the land. The oppression pictures a reversal of the life in the land that they had been promised. They are living in caves, homeless like the nomads they once were. All right, scene one is next. The Israelites are reminded and rebuked. Verse seven, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The Israelites cry out and a prophet appears. Now, this is a first, a prophet rather than a deliverer. Deborah was a hybrid, both prophet and deliverer. But here is someone, we don't know who, sent prior to the deliverer just to rebuke the Israelites about what they are doing and to remind them of what God did for them. The prophet alludes to Egypt. He says, remember what I did to the Egyptians, how I decimated their land, their livestock, and then their sons, all to deliver you. All I ask is your faithfulness to me, but you have not obeyed. So now your land, your livestock is being decimated. Do something about it. God is trying so hard to convict the Israelites. He wants true repentance, not just selfish cries for relief. The Israelites cry out when things get bad, but then they return to their sin, revealing a heart that has not truly repented. It's the cycle we're in, and this is the fourth time. Their sorrow is only skin deep. When the wound heals, they forget it. Once again, God must remind them what he has done in the past and what they have done in the present in the hope that they would be convicted and repent. In 2 Corinthians, Paul clearly explains what God was looking for in the Israelites each and every time he had to chastise them. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Paul is saying that he feels bad because he chastised them and he was sorry, but he's not sorry because he's happy that his chastisement of them made them repent. And he says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. 
poor God, because he's trying to chastise the Israelites, but he's just getting worldly sorrow. He's not getting true repentance. Don't you just feel like Paul might have been a parent, even though we all know he wasn't? Oh, no, when he, yes. that? <laughs> he was definitely a parent. Um, at least he was to the children of Israel. Um, so this was God's message to Israel. And this is his message to us. God wants us to have life, abundant life. For the Israelites, it was life in the promised land. For us, it is life in the promised kingdom to come. But we must repent of our sins. Simply crying out for relief is not the answer that leads to life. Israel's sorrow was only for themselves. It was worldly, as Paul called it. The sorrow did not extend beyond their world to their relationship with God. It was all about their life on earth. We're suffering. Help us. They regret this life because it is causing them pain, but they aren't repenting of it. The goal of this prophet and most prophets in the Old Testament was to move Israel from regret to repentance by reminding them of God's promise and calling them back to obedience so that their covenant relationship could be restored. We today have the advantage over the Israelites. We have the words of the prophets in the Bible, and we can learn from Israel, but we also have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to convict and inspire us. Listen to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. I am so thankful that we have the Holy Spirit on top of the words of the prophet because our repentance should be um, augmented by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and who gives us revelation. Now, warned by a prophet, God raises up a reluctant judge for Israel. After Deborah, you will notice that the judges will have longer stories. There is an increase in the words in each story that corresponds to the decrease in each judge's spiritual and moral character. This can be seen in both men and women portrayed. In fact, it's kind of interesting. The story of the first judge begins with a couple, Othniel and his wife, Aksa, who together pursue God's plan and promise in the land. The judges morally decline until we reach the last judge, Samson, whom along with Delilah make a couple whose desire for each other has nothing to do with the Lord and becomes really destructive. Our next judge, Gideon, is the first with more than a handicap like Ehud and Deborah had. Gideon is glaringly weak, both emotionally and spiritually. And so this is the first of the judges that kind of really marks that spiritual decline. Scene two, the angel makes another appearance. Now we have encountered this angel at least half a dozen times so far in Bible book club. So just if you're keeping track of angels in Genesis 16, he appeared to a non-Israelite Hagar in Genesis 18, he appeared to Abraham for discussion about Sodom in Genesis 22. He appeared to Abraham again, sparing Isaac from sacrifice in Exodus three. He appeared to Moses in the burning bush in numbers 22. He appeared to another non-Israelite Balaam and the donkey. In Joshua 5, he appeared as the commander of the Lord's army. 
In Judges 2, he appeared to the people. The curious thing is that the angel does not always startle those who meet him. So we must assume he does not fit our visions of a bright white winged creature. Gideon's interaction with this angel is lengthy, but it's the same. He doesn't at first realize to whom he is speaking. Now, how do we know it's the same angel every time appearing? Because usually it just says an angel of the Lord. They don't well, name it. Do it they? says the angel of the Lord. So we assume, but we're going to talk about that a teeny bit more. We never know anything like that for sure, but we can, we can make some fun assumptions. Yeah. Because sometimes it names Michael, doesn't it? But not. We haven't gotten to any, any of those yet. Well, we'll just have to keep listening to the Bible. I book know. We're going to accumulate our angel sightings and see what we discover. <laughs> All right. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of, up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Okay, let's analyze this conversation between Gideon and the angel. Imagine the scene. I hope you caught this. Gideon is hiding from the Midianites secretly trying to thresh wheat in a wine press, not on a threshing floor. And I am not sure how you do that. So just let me state that right away. But threshing, the separation of seed from husks was usually done using animals, not by hand. So whatever he's doing, it's not easy. But Gideon is desperate because remember, the Midians are like locusts, ravenous invaders who are devouring all the produce of the land. It said whenever they plant something, the Midianites would come and steal it all. So he is trying to provide some bread in secret. Now, when the angel of the Lord appears and informs Gideon that the Lord is with him and that he is a mighty warrior, did Gideon not even look up from his work? Did he think it was a joke? He is hiding because he's furiously working here. He's having to do this by hand. So, you know, what kind of mighty warrior hides? Was he too focused on providing bread for his family that he did not realize that this is an angel? Or did the angel look like a man? We don't know. Also, not why sure. is the mighty warrior the one doing the work? Don't you think normally he would have a staff of people to Point help is, him do this? He's not a mighty warrior. <laughs> but he replies politely, pardon me, but the Lord is not with us. He has abandoned us, is what he says. Gideon's rationale is that, quote, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us, unquote. Gideon obviously has limited knowledge of the covenant with God and that the promised land was a gift, theirs to keep only as long as they kept the commandments to love him, which they have clearly not. Gideon thinks that if things are going wrong, it is God's fault. God abandoned them. No mention of them abandoning God first. Gideon shows no signs of knowledge of the first commandment or repentance for breaking it. So he blames his circumstance on the Lord rather than on himself and the people. Therefore, he is waiting for God to do something, wondering why he doesn't. It has not even occurred to Gideon that he is part of the problem and that he can and will be part of the solution. And this is a challenge to us. Do we expect God 
or perhaps even become angry with God for our situation, waiting for him to make a move while he is waiting for us to make a move. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. One thing I love about doing Bible Book Club is we do take the time to analyze every word. And if you noticed, it said that the Lord turned to him. Whoops. Where did the Lord come from? I thought Gideon was talking to an angel. The same thing happened in Abraham's discourse with the angel in Genesis. Now, this is a mystery that sometimes it says the angel, and then it says, whoops, the Lord all of a sudden was there because when Abraham walked then towards Sodom, it was the Lord who walked with him. The other two angels had left because remember in that case, there were three. So they're kind of like a vessel for God's presence. So this is a mystery, but many of the commentators will say, It hints at another mystery, a foreshadowing, we could say, of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember, we saw this a little bit in Exodus when we had another example of the Trinity in the cloud, which represented the Holy Spirit that led the people through the wilderness. It is thought that the angel of the Lord in this scene is the Son of God, working to bring salvation and peace to the Israelites, just as Jesus did for us. Now, we know Jesus was with him in the beginning when the world was created, because John verified that in John 1. If you don't know that story, go back to the beginning of Genesis, episode 1, for Bible Book Club, season 1. This makes sense that this was Jesus in this case, because in some of the appearances of the angel of the Lord, such as Hagar's, Abraham's, and this one, they all talked with the angel without being surprised by his appearance. They talked as if they were talking to a normal man. And Jesus is the one in the Trinity who we know became man. So it would not be surprising for Jesus to take the form of a man here, which I think is super cool. All right. Gideon asked for pardon again because he waffles with doubt about himself this time. He says, how can I save Israel? And it's a reasonable question. It's actually very similar to Moses's reaction in Exodus 3.11 when he said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? That was when he talked to the burning bush. Again, the angel of the Lord said, Moses probably felt very similarly about his family situation as Gideon does. Moses was born into a Jewish family, raised by an Egyptian family, and then married into a Midianite family. Not a great track record as a future leader for Israel. And here is a Bible bender. The very family, the Midianites, that Moses married into are the people who are attacking the Israelites in Gideon's time. The Midianites are fickle, as I mentioned in the last episode, where the Midianites had made an alliance with the Canaanites, except, of course, who assassinated the leader of the Canaanite army. You never know which side those Midianites will end up on. It appears God has chosen another unlikely handicapped judge in Gideon. His family is weak. He is from the worst clan of the tribe of Manasseh, and he is at the bottom of the bottom, the least in his family, which means he will have no political clout to rally an army. His education 
is weak. He really doesn't know much about God, God's covenant, or his promises. And his self-esteem is weak. He is hiding from the Midianites in fear and doubts his ability to influence his own tribe, let alone the rest of Israel. Why did God pick this guy? Exactly. Well, the Lord responds with encouragement. We know why God picked him so that no one may boast. Verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Okay, so first Gideon doubted himself and then Gideon doubts that this is God. He wants a sign and he asked for it. He is the first in the Old Testament to do so. Normally, as in Moses' story, God provided a sign but Moses had not asked. The fact that Gideon asked at all is a sign of a lack of faith. Unlike Moses, trusting God will be a struggle for Gideon. And Gideon's lack of trust is rooted in not knowing God and not remembering what God has done for him. Again, a warning to us. <laughs> Verse 18, please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephath of flour, he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff in his hand. Fire flared up from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abazarites. So this is the only judge that really gets to have these, this long extended chat with God. And I think it is kind of an example to us of, you know, some people get more visible, tangible um, kind of uh, things that happen in their life more than others that they can cling to. And sometimes people need that and some people don't. And we just can't just, we can't all have what some people have. So just note that about him. Gideon's eyes are being opened to the possibility of God because he doubts so much, but he wants validation that this is God. So he thinks, well, if this is the Lord, I should make an offering, which is kind of funny. It's not exactly how and why the book of the law in Leviticus says you should make an offering, but nice thought. God allows it and uses it as proof that he is speaking. The proof or fiery consumption of the offering then scares Gideon. So Gideon's almost saying like, oh, I need a sign. Then he gets a sign and he oh, kind I've of seen the Lord, I'm chicken little. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the sky is falling. Um, so once again, God reassures him. The result is that Gideon now has confidence that the Lord has spoken to him and he reacts. Gideon is grateful and he builds an altar to remember and honor God for the peace that, that Gideon believes will come. Now, he waffles. This man, you're going to get frustrated with his story in the next episode because here he doubted himself. He doubted God. Then he believes and he makes an altar to God, kind of turning. But you're going to see that that lack of a foundation of who God is and what he stands for um, is going to come back 
to haunt him. All right, scene three. Gideon, fired up now, literally, takes a stand and the idols take a fall. It's time for Gideon to get to work. So first, God wants Gideon to rid the land of false idols. The Israelites must demonstrate their faithfulness and worship to God and God only. And only then will God give them victory over the Midianites. Let's get back to the promise. If you're faithful to me, I'll be faithful to you and you will live in the land. Then Gideon must replace the false idol altars with an altar to God. Verse 25, that same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So this is where Gideon's name comes into play. Um, and he and he fulfills the prophecy of his name, kind of. His name means to hack or cut down. And it's appropriate because God has called Gideon to do just that. Cut down the poles. The poles that represent sacred trees erected to honor the Asherah, the Canaanite mother goddess. Verse 27, so Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Okay, Gideon waffles with fear. This is his MO. Even though he has met the Lord, literally met the Lord, he still waffles with fear. He was so afraid that he executed his first task for God under the cover of night. Remember, he hid from the Midianites when he was threshing the wheat, and now he hides from the Israelites while tearing down their idols. If we compare him to Deborah, we can see how far the judges have fallen. Deborah, a woman, had no such fear and readily agreed to go into battle against an army known for abusing women. Clearly, God has some work to do to build this weak judge Gideon. Just as God has work to do with those of us who doubt, we too can take a stand for God, like Gideon. And when we do, God will work with us, even when we are afraid. He will build our trust in Him and confidence in ourselves. Okay, it says that the new altar Gideon built was on top of the height, which means it would have been visible to all Israelites and Midianites. So when the Israelites wake up and see it, they are afraid that the Midianites will see it too. This would have been seen as a declaration of war against Baal and an act of rebellion against Midian. The Israelites are way more afraid of false gods like Baal and the Midianites than they are of their own true God. Verse 31, but Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerubbaal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. Joash 
Gideon's father responds in Gideon's defense. From this passage, we may wonder if perhaps Gideon had exaggerated his family's low station, because in verse 25, it's stated that it was Gideon's father's altar, which may imply that Joash was the manager of the town's shrine. Then Joash responds with bold leadership. He grasps the gist of the situation, possibly because he had insight from Gideon about Gideon's discussion with the angel before the village were even awake and aware, but we don't know. Joash defends his son, calms the crowd, and stems their fear by referring the case to a higher authority. If Baal is angry, he can defend himself. Gideon, as a result, is renamed Jerubbaal, which means let Baal contend with him, which is rather ironic for a judge sent by God to deliver Israel. Verse 33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. When the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet summoning the Abezerites to follow him, he sent messengers throughout Manasseh calling them to arms and also to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali so that they too went up to meet him. Gideon ends the scene on a high note. As God's chosen deliverer, he conquered his initial fear and was filled with the Spirit of the Lord. However, the Midianites and the Amalekites have sensed the rebellion mounting under Gideon, the new judge of Israel, and have joined forces in preparation for war. In our next episode, Gideon will be put to the test. Will he waffle or will he win? What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.